come here every week. It's, it's, great. it's great to see you. Uh, appreciate you. Love you. And then if you are new to the church, if you uh, have been coming for the last couple weeks and, and, uh, or if this is your first Sunday and you're looking for a church home, we want to say a couple things. One, we pray for new people to come all the time. We want to see more people come to know Jesus, and we would love to be a part of the discipleship-making process uh, in your life. And if you're looking to get connected a little bit more, just encourage you to go to the info booth. Uh, at the info booth, we've got a free gift for you. Uh, it's the place you would sign up for our newsletter that we send out every week. In that newsletter, it tells you everything that's happening, uh, all of the announcements, all of the events. Uh, gives you a place to sign up for stuff. And then we've got pastoral blogs on there that we put on there on occasion. And then we also, if you have kids that are next door, uh, you may or may not be aware that we launch a family devotion every week in that newsletter. And that devotion is based primarily off of uh, the teaching that the kids are going through uh, next week. And Frank, uh, could you do me a favor? I left my water bottle up there. If you could, at some point, I might need to drink water. No, don't refill it. You're okay, thanks. Um, Appreciate it. And then uh, a couple things that we have coming up, just so you're aware before we get into uh, Galatians chapter 3. One is we're in the midst of a candy drive, so we're trying to collect as much candy as we can because every year we've been putting on an event called uh, Trunk or Treat. And Trunk or Treat is, is an event that we do out in our parking lot. And last year alone, we had well over a 1,000 people attend Trunk or Treat. It's become not only a major event for our church, it's become one of the major events in the community as a whole. And, and you know, one of the core values of our church, one of the, the things that makes our heart beat is not only do we want to gather in this building and learn God's word, and learn who Jesus is, and worship the one and true God, we also want this community to know we love trucking. And there's all kinds of things that we do throughout the year that you're not even totally sometimes fully aware of that we do uh, in the community, for the community, just for the sake of the community knowing that Jesus loves them and Sierra Bible Church loves them. And so we put this event on as a safe place uh, during Halloween where kids can come on our campus. We line up cars and the kids pull candy from all of the cars. Uh, we dress up, and we redeem that day by building relationships. And we also have some people strategically placed in the parking lot uh, that kids have to go to for a scavenger hunt. Uh, a, a scavenger hunt. Woo. And um, we'll just bypass that altogether and ignore that happened. And, um, and you, 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 uh, they, they actually get the gospel preached to them, so there's opportunity for them to hear uh, one part of the gospel, then they got to go to the next part, get the next part of the gospel, get the next part of the gospel, and it's uh, a pretty uh, awesome event. So I want to encourage you to come, and there's two big asks. Ask one is, please uh, bring candy. We need more candy. Uh, we give out a lot of candy at that event, and so you can see there's a barrel outside that uh, we're filling up every week uh, for that event. And then the other one is we're, we're looking for people to help. Uh, we need volunteers, people to help keep the kids safe, looking for people to decorate their cars, uh, dress up, build relationships, uh, cook hot dogs and do all of those kind of things. We need volunteers. And Brad Knoll is the guy for that. So big bad Brad that you see who normally does worship up here, he runs uh, that event. And so I want to encourage you uh, to, uh, to go and meet up with him for that. And then we have, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, a little while back we launched um, uh, a group called Catalyst. It's for our college-age kids. Uh, it's been well attended, and, and they're, uh, they usually meet on the second and fourth Friday each month uh, here at the church, but they're actually meeting at Frank's house uh, this week. Is Frank in the room somewhere? There he is. There's Frank. Frank, you want to stand up just so people know uh, who you are, who to connect with. If you're college age, you're looking for uh, a, good, a good event, we want to encourage you uh, to go there. And then, of course, our ladies always have something going on at the church. They're doing bunko. So um, I don't even know how to play bunko, but apparently it's fun. I think it's, it's like a glorified way to gamble. Is that right? So... You don't have to go to Reno and lose your money because that's dumb. You can go to Bunko, spend five bucks, and win a prize. So uh, you're paying for fellowship. You're not paying to lose your money. Would never encourage you to do that. So uh, Bunko's happening. So with that said, that's your announcements this week. Um, and uh, now we're going to get in the Word. So Galatians chapter 3. Um, <clears throat> so if you're new, we have a tradition here at the church where uh, we love God's Word so much and and we want to do things that show that honor and that love towards his word. So if you have the ability this morning, would you please stand with me as we read from Galatians chapter 3. Verse 15. 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And Lord, we pray your promise would be true to us this morning. Speak to us, minister to us, love on us, Lord. Lead us to your uh, presence. We trust it. In Jesus' name, the church said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll, I'll say this too, this is kind of a neat deal before we get going. Um, so last week, we, we actually launched um, our live feed, and so uh, we're currently live uh, on Facebook, so uh, welcome Facebook group of people. You should be at church, that's why we put it online, just to remind you, you should be here. Uh, but no, I, I joke in that we are, we are doing this for people who uh, have requested it. We have a lot of people that actually visit our church on a regular basis, they're out of town uh, on a regular basis, or, or they're here for a few months out of the year, uh, and then they're there a few months out of the year, wherever there is for them. And so if you're sick, or if you happen to be out of the area, we'd love for you to, to join us live. But outside of that, of course, we would encourage you to be here to actually know and learn how to talk with other human beings. We have to kind of like emphasize that now in this day and age, you know? It's okay to look at people. It's okay to, to say hi and talk to them, Right? You with me? Okay. Um, so Paul, if you remember, Paul, Paul loves the Galatian people. And as a good pastor, he, um, he has, in essence, birthed this church. And, and he's taught them that, that they're saved by grace. And many of these individuals are, are not Jews in Galatia. So they don't know the, the laws of the Jews. They don't know the Old Testament. They they're, they're really raw in regards to that part of the Christian faith. And so they're kind of coming along, and they're in this relationship with Jesus. And as Paul has continued on his missionary journeys, and has, as he's been in prison and gone through all that he's going through, uh, while he's gone from this particular church, the Judaizers came in and said, hey, listen, in order for you to be saved, it's not just by uh, faith, it's also by works. You've got you've to add to your faith. You've got to do some things. You've got to work according to specifically the Mosaic laws, the laws of purification, the ceremonial laws to be clean. And and though you may not be a Judaizer this morning, this idea of law versus grace still exists within the Christian church. It still exists within, specifically, I'd say in a lot of American churches, where we begin to put preference uh, and prejudice above that which God would, would call us to. Uh, an example of that would be, the, be churches that would say, in order to really uh, be a person who glorifies God, you've got to dress a particular way when you come to church, which doesn't exist in Truckee Tahoe at all, right? Like, we don't care how you dress here. Like, that, that is a cultural thing. It's like, you, 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 we dress down, we don't dress up. 
some churches would say, and you know, if you're really going to worship God, you can't wear a hat in church, and so you should take your hat off. Or, or they would say, you know, when you do uh, worship, you shouldn't, uh, from the stage, you shouldn't be wearing sandals, right? And we know that Jesus probably wore sandals, so it's probably okay, right? In fact, Brad's probably the most spiritual out of all of us. But we have these preferences, even, and, and we see it even in, in little things where, where with contemporary music, some, some churches, ours uh, is one of them, not all of the time. We do sing hymns, but many churches have moved away from the traditional hymn or even the hymnal book. We're giving away our, our hymnal books. You see them on the deck because we don't use the hymnals, uh, the books, as much anymore, in part because we have screens and in part because we don't go traditional all that often. There's nothing wrong with traditional hymns, but traditional hymns aren't better than modern music necessarily. Now, we could enter into a whole debate with that. Most modern music is actually horrible. Um, But if you look in a hymnal book, and if you're actually thinking theologically, there's not only really, really good hymns that are theologically and doctrinally just rooted in goodness, there's some bad ones in there too. Like, like it's good writers and bad writers have always existed. Good music and bad music has always existed. And we we do, uh, Brad and and Caleb and uh, those who do worship here, we we put an emphasis on when when we sing, we sing that which is true. And we sing that which is glorifying to God and not self-centered, okay? That, that's, that's the overarching theme. Now, if you like electric guitar, great, but it's not more spiritual than the organ, even though we don't have an organ. In fact, we were talking this week how, how many people now have a hard time, would have a hard time learning even how to play the organ. It's just a kind of a lost art. All that to be said, we have ways within the church where we start to elevate preference elevate things that we think are culturally acceptable that God has nothing to do with. And so Paul is pushing against the Galatian church and telling them, you can't add to your faith. What makes you better isn't what you do. It's not how you dress. It's not, it's not the, the kind of music that you play. It's the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that you're saved not by the law, but by grace. That's what the whole book is about. And the gospel is just repetitive in this book. It's almost as if at times it feels like for me, and it may be for you, he keeps preaching the same message every week. And that's because Paul keeps preaching the same message every single chapter. And it's because the church has to be continually reminded we're saved by the free grace and the free gift of God. And Paul says in this passage, eight times in chapter three alone, eight times that we're saved by the promise of God, not the law of God. The promise of God, not the law of God. Eight times that word promise is mentioned. And the reason is this. Paul's an intelligent guy. God saved Paul as an intelligent man, and he uses Paul's intelligence. And Paul knows as he's writing this letter that the Judaizers are going to kick back and say this. They're going to say, okay, wait a minute, Paul. Uh, We understand that you're saying that you're saved by faith, and we don't disagree with you. And so there's history here. He says, he says okay, uh, there was a time when God came to Abraham, and Abraham's mentioned in the text. And Abraham, when God came to Abraham, God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you many nations. I'm going to make many nations one nation through you. And he promises to Abraham, not only am I going to make one nation out of you, uh, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be so many people who, who are going to come to God through you. Even Gentiles are going to come to God through you, Abraham. This is a really big deal. And so God worked in faith. And Paul's been saying, he said it last week uh, in, in the last chapter that we read, that, that we're saved by faith as just as Abraham was saved by faith. And he knew that the Judaizers would say, yep, we agree. We agree. However, 430 years later, God gave the law. And Moses went to the mountain, went to Mount Sinai, and he got the tablets, and he got the Ten Commandments, and he came down and said, this is the law of God. And what the Judaizers essentially were saying was this. They were saying, yep, yep, it's, it's faith, but God added to faith. God, in the timeline of things, added to faith to the law. And so they were teaching, saved by faith and saved by the law and working according to the law. And Paul knows that the, that's what they're saying. And so this morning, uh, my message is, Five reasons, five reasons the promise is superior to the law. Five reasons, and, and uh, the reason I didn't show you this slide is I realized this morning I had it backwards. Did you, did you notice it? 
Five ways the law is superior. Okay, that's been my week this week right here. I've just had one of those weeks where everything has been backwards. My mouth isn't moving the way that I want it to. Uh, and, uh, and, and so ignore that slide and just we're in Galatians. That's what you need to know. Okay, in your notes, it's correct. Thank God in your notes, if you got them this morning, five ways that the promises are superior to the law. And, and what he's, did I say it wrong again? You guys are just laughing at me. Man, it's, I've, this has been one of those days where I'm like, you know, I might quit my job. I just might leave. <clears throat> so um, <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is one of those things that, that is important because Paul, not only does Paul make it important, but, but our minds have a hard time wrapping ourselves around this idea that we're saved by grace. And I know this because I'm just as guilty of it, and I'm sure you are too. When you sin or you make a mistake, you automatically fall back on, I, I've got to do something to, to balance that out, to make it right. And if you're married, you totally understand this, right? Because it's said that if you, if you do something that you shouldn't or you say something you shouldn't to your wife, uh, then you know you've got to go out and buy some flowers, right? And that's kind of the thing that we, we, we're in this tension as people where if I do something bad, well, I can fix it by doing something good. And for every bad I have, I erase it with a good. And this is ultimately what Paul is saying in the promises versus the law, that, that that's just not going to happen. It doesn't work that way, um, that, your, that your sin is too big, you've got too much debt, you've got too many wrongs to make it right, so you need something greater than the law, greater than good deeds. You need promises. And the law was such a big deal to the Judaizers, they said, they, they started adding to the 10, right? And, and we start learning that they actually had over 600 laws that they had to adhere to, and the Jews began to get really ridiculous with this. To the point where they said on the Sabbath, you can actually only take so many steps. So they all had Fitbits, and they would count. You can't get beyond this many steps because if I do, I'd be in sin. And that's essentially uh, where they were at. And so Paul gives us five reasons. Here's the first reason the promise is better than the law. The first reason that grace is better than trying to earn your favor, earn salvation from God. Reason number one is the everyday example Paul uses, or a human example. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So he uses human contracts, right? In today's day and age, it used to be, we'll get to what it used to be way back in the Old Testament, but, but it used to be that you, if you purchased a home and you went through the process of purchasing a home, you know you go through a step called escrow. And during escrow, in that contract, it starts to get written up that during escrow, you're going to enter into certain kind of obligations between buyer and seller, right? Uh, and so you might find that, that the heater doesn't work. And then you enter into a new kind of contract in the cell of that home. I will fix the heater, but you need to replace the trim or what have you. And, and Allie and I, we've, we've been able to purchase, by God's grace, two different homes in our, in our marriage. And the last home we bought, well, it, it's, just, it's changed over the years. The first home we bought, the, the escrow process, was, it, it was pretty quick and pretty fast. And, and I've noticed just in, in the last five years that the paperwork for escrow has, uh, has gotten a lot bigger. Like, like they, they, they are listing everything. I mean, they told us every scratch in the wood floor that existed, as if I was going to then go back to the, the seller and say, you've got to fix uh, scratch number one and scratch number 65, but we're not worried with scratch number 16, right? Uh, and so you know when you, and he says, this everyday contract stuff, you, once it's solidified, once it's written up, and once it's signed, you can't break out of that. Now, today, uh, all of it's done online for the most part, and you can do it on DocuSign, you do it on your computer, you can do it on your phone, but it's binding, right? And if you break a human contract, he says, we, we know in a human contract that, that there are legal repercussions that exist if you do it wrong. And, and one of the things the Bible talks about in regards to uh, a covenant contract or a contract, he calls it a covenant. And the biggest covenant in the Bible, outside of our covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, he says, is a marriage. It, it's, it's being married. And you know when you stand at the, the altar, uh, if you've ever done that with a pastor, you know that the pastor actually goes through a process of vow-taking, vow-giving. Another way of saying it is promises, right? And those promises are under, under the, the headship 
of Christ. So in a Christian ceremony, we say we recognize there's man, woman, and God. God is present. And that as we stand there, we go through this process, we give these promises to one another and their future promises, right? They're not promises for, for today. So I've had couples over the years, they say, I want to write my own vows. And I always am very cautious with young people when they write their own vows because most of the time they don't mean anything. Most of the time, they're, if, if you write your own vows without understanding what they are, they're just, just, just full of emotional fluff, Right? I love you. I love the way you look at me. I love the way you make me feel. I want to love you for you're like, no, dude, it's not a vow. It's not a vow. There's a young couple here, just got married. They walked into church, man, and they've got the biggest smiles on their face. They've been married like 10 days, right? As they're walking up the stairs, I thought, you guys look ridiculous because you don't even know. You have no idea. Because in 10, like, like, I want to see that same look on your face in 10 years, man. And, and, and you know in the, when you stand at the altar, you say, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health for richer, for poor, for, for, for good, for better, and for worse. You're saying, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to love you sacrificially, whether I feel it or not, because it's the right thing. And we've lost that in American culture a little bit. We do things because it's right and it's true and it's beautiful. Sacrifice is beautiful. And so, so when a couple comes in and they've been married for 10 years, I can't wait till that couple sees me in 10 years because they, they will. At some point, they'll come in and they'll say, it's hard. Marriage is difficult, and I don't know that I like this person right now. And they're going to look at each other and say, I don't like you. Well, I don't like you. And this happens in my office on occasion, and you've got a couple in there going, I don't like you, and I don't like you. And you're over there going, well, this is fun. <laughs> and, then, and then I'll say, you, you were married, and you were married by a pastor, and you were married under the gospel of grace, and you entered into a covenant, a covenant b- between you and God, and you said, for better or for worse, is this worse? Yes. All right. Now go home and grind it out. Yeah. I don't tell them that. I don't just say, go home and grind it out. <laughs> that, that would, I give better advice than that. But the point being is, the point being is, You've entered into a covenant, you've entered into a promise, and there's ramifications to breaking that promise. And what Paul is doing is he's saying the promise, the promise is better than the law. Even in human, human ways, human thinking, it's better. And then he mentions, he mentions Abraham, and he's talking about Abraham and the promise. Because remember, Abraham preceded the law, and the Judaizers are saying, essentially, that, that, that faith and law go together, and what, what Paul is saying is no. They, they don't go together the way that you think they do. And, and he mentions Abraham because Abraham entered into a contractual obligation, a, 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 an agreement of promises between himself and God. So if you remember the story, God takes Abraham out and he tells Abraham, you know, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't know. But he tells him, remember, he says, I'm going to make of you a, a big nation, one nation that, that it's going to glorify me, one nation from many people, every tribe and tongue, and you're going to be blessed. And God said, now, we're going to enter into a contract. And so what he did, if you remember, in Genesis chapter uh, 15, he tells Abraham, because this is how they used to sign contracts in Abraham's day. He tells Abraham, I want you to go grab a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. So essentially he says, go raid the local zoo. Bring these animals to this location. And then he tells Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut them in half. I want you to slaughter them and cut them in half. And, the, and what they did traditionally is they set a part of the animal on each side, making an aisleway between all of these newly sacrificed animals. It was kind of a bloody mess. It was kind of an ugly thing. But if I entered into a contract, so if, w- with any of you here in the church, back in Abraham's day, this was the customary way to sign the contract. We would take the animals, we'd slice them in two, we'd make an aisleway, we'd walk through the aisleway, and as we walked through the aisleway, we would state, let it be done to me what has been done to these animals if I break my contract with you. And so it was a serious deal. I'm signing this with the blood of animals, and I'm stating that this, this needs to happen between you and I. And so God says, Abraham, I'm going to enter into this agreement here with you. I want you to go get the animals. We're going to sign a contract. He, he's essentially, and I'm sure in Abraham's mind, was thinking, as soon as he does this, he's gonna let, God's going to let me know what I have to do. 
God's going to tell me what he's going to do, and somehow, some way, I'm going to walk through the aisleway, and God himself is going to walk through the aisleway, and we're going to enter into this contract, and Abraham's going to feel like, I can't break my promises because God's going to cut me in two. And instead, what happens is after, after the animals are sliced in two and they're separated, God has, has a, at sunset, causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And Abraham passes out, and then it tells us that, that what passed between the animals was something that looked like a smoking oven or a flaming torch. And it was symbolically that, that it was God himself who walked through those two animals, making a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of, many, of one nation from many nations. And then Abraham wakes up, and the process is complete. Abraham has no way to actually say that he's going to uphold any of his promises. There's no promises for Abraham to uphold because God himself upholds the promise. He signs the contract. It's a one-way contract. And so the promise is more superior than the laws because God himself fulfills the promise. And he has done that for us now by actually being the sacrifice for dying on our behalf, for taking the death that we deserve. And so we don't have to work our way to heaven. That's number one. It's more superior uh, because, because God himself has made this promise. And even in human terms, we would uphold our promises as well. And God has done it. Amen? The second reason it's more superior is because of the seed. There's this weird language. Like if you're not used to reading the Bible or you don't have a commentary that helps you, uh, you could read that and you read and you're like, it says it multiple different times, offspring or seed. Uh, and, and you can read it and go, what is being said here? And essentially what he's saying is the promise is to the offspring. It's not plural. It's not offsprings. And what he's saying, he's, say, he's going back into the Old Testament. He's saying, you've got to take note of what God is saying to Abraham. And he's saying that the promise, the promise isn't through people the promise is through the seed, and that seed is God himself. So our promise uh, that we, we are saved by grace is sealed by the fact that we have a Messiah who is God, who is the seed, who has fulfilled the promise. So it's centered on Jesus. The promise is centered on Jesus himself. Any church that's healthy will be focused on two things. One, the Bible, and two, the Jesus of the Bible, amen? And so we, we, what's really amazing about this with this word seed that's used is, is used initially all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Now, if you know Genesis chapters one and two, you know what's occurred. Adam and Eve, the world was created and really, really quickly, the first two people on the planet, they turned their back on God and they sinned. And as soon as they sinned, God was already working on a gospel-centered, grace-saving message. Remember it? They fall. God provides for them the first sacrifice. He clothes them because they realize that they were naked. And then in Genesis 3, he says this to Adam and Eve, I'll put en enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That seed, he says, shall bruise your head, speaking of Satan, and you shall bruise his heel, speaking of Jesus' death on the, on the cross. What's so beautiful is this idea, this is what Paul's saying, this is what he's mentioning. He's saying the seed, he's going all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. He's going all the way back for, for them in, in Genesis. He's saying, here's the beautiful thing. God has been bent on saving you from the beginning. Isn't that good? You haven't even been born yet, and Jesus, God himself, has already been working on the solution of your fracturedness and your brokenness. It's so beautiful. That's number too. Keller says, says this in regards to even thinking about faith. I, I think I might have a slide for this. Um, that's one I skipped. It's not your strength of faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a small branch. And the reason I mention this when you think of the great gift of God is that the Bible has a lot to say about faith because last week Paul said, the righteous shall live by faith. This is this ongoing theme that if I'm saved, I don't live by the law, I live by faith in God. And, and what's beautiful about this idea of faith is that the Bible says that faith is a gift from God. You, 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 don't, you can't even claim that you have faith because God gave you faith. In fact, 
Later, when it talks about different giftings, it says to each Christian, to each person, you were given a measure of faith. Are you with me on that? You know what I mean by that? God gave me a measure of faith. That measure of faith is to stand up here and speak. Now, it's said statistically that that is uh, people's, one of people's number one fears is public speaking. Is that anyone this morning? That's, you didn't want to raise your hand. You're so scared, right? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a big fear for a lot of people. But then, but then you have the kind of, kind of faith like Travis Owen that we support who, who moved his family from Roseville after making good money and said, I'm going to put this business stuff behind me and I'm going to go serve orphans and widows in Mexico. That's another kind of faith. We've got people who are taking care of babies in the nursery right now. That's a measure of faith that I don't possess. I don't possess that measure of faith. And it's those things, th- these, this idea of faith is important to understand in regards to God's grace because the faith you have is a gift. You can't say you earned it. God gave it to you as a free gift. And the quote that Keller has here is important because, because you'll hear Christians sometimes say, and this is how I said, this idea of working according to the law is so insidious because we think, we think if I just do certain things, my faith will increase. Or, or I need more faith. God, give me more faith. And the Bible never says you need more faith. Jesus, in fact, his own words were, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. There's another incredible story where a man who's kind of a picture of God comes to Jesus, who is God, and says to Jesus, he says, he says you've got to come to my house. You've got to come where I'm at because my only son, and Jesus is an only son, he's dying, and I'm going to lose him. And I need you to come. And Jesus, you know, being who he is, he, he knows that he's not just speaking to that man. He's speaking into the ages to come. He's speaking to you and I when he says, he says to him, do you believe? Do you have faith? And what does the man say? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Essentially, he says, I do and I don't. I want to and I can't. And, and Jesus looks into that man and takes takes exactly what that man has, exactly what that man can give, and he says, go home, your son has been made well. All that to be said, it's not about the size of your faith, it's about the object of your faith. And the object of your faith is the seed. The object of your faith is Jesus Christ. And that's the branch that we hold on to. And it doesn't matter how strong your grip is, because at the end of the day, it's not even holding on to the branch, it's the branch holding on to you, for you are the branch and he is the vine, and we are woven into him through faith. Amen. It's a beautiful picture of how good God is to his people. You know, this morning, you, you may be here this morning. There, there is a, a very uh, good chance that some of you are here this morning and you've been beat up this week with guilt and you've been beat up this week with shame. There's a good chance for some of you that your marriage has been difficult this week and your kids have been unruly and the school system hasn't been what it what you would want it to be, or your wallet isn't as, as well as it could be, or you've got financial things that are bothering you, or, or like me, you saw the snow poles go up this week. <laughs> you know, winter's coming. And you go, okay, Lord, like, like what do I do? And you, you know what you do? You, you put your eyes on the seed that is the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. You put your faith in him, and you recognize that no matter how bad your marriage is or how bad your life may seem, you need a new perspective a fresh perspective, and that perspective is God's got it. God's got you, and he's behind you, and he loves you. And you can go through any trial, any tribulation, any, anything that seems super hard because of the fact that Jesus exists. Now, yesterday, we, we were here for pretty much a full day yesterday, and we, we said goodbye to a good friend here. His name was Wade Hoyt. Wade is the son of Ruth and and Brian Hoyt, who are here this morning, and, and so is their grandson. He was here uh, this morning, Wade's son. And some of you may, maybe didn't get a chance to meet Wade. Or you met him, and you probably didn't know it, because, because sometimes he would stand outside, and he would, he would just welcome you for, for coming, kind of in a, a joking way. He was doing it for his own entertainment. And he would, he, I'd see him on a Sunday, and I'd walk up to him, and, and uh and I'd go to, you know, say, hey, how you doing? And, and he'd walk up and go, hey, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you made it. Thanks for, thanks for being here. And, and you know, just kind of joking with me. And, and then the next line would be, you know, I want to fight you. Let's wrestle right now. Come on. 
And not right here in the parking lot, Wade. We can't. No, I can take you. I'll take you anywhere. You just let me know when. That was the kind of guy he was. And his, his son looks just like him. And, and yesterday, we, we had the opportunity, not just myself, but, but his mom and his friends and his brother to share the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that Wade came to know because he, he started to see in his life that it wasn't by his works, but by faith in God. And he started to enjoy coming to church where before he didn't. There was a pretense to church in his mind, I think. And he started to come and realize that, it, that the people here were not self-righteous people. And I thank you for that. Can I just say thank you, church, for being a church that welcomes all kinds of different people, brokenness, fracturedness, people with tattoos. Thank you, Lord, for that one, right? Thank you, God, that, that, that he's given us a church of people who understand that the promise indeed is better than the law and that this church isn't a church that judges by the exterior but judges by what's inside of the heart. As it's been said, don't judge a man from what you think he should be. Judge him from where he came from. We never know anyone's backstory. And Wade started to hear that promise, and I want you to hear that promise. God is bigger than anything you've ever dealt with. He's bigger than your marriage, my friends. Is, amen to that? You've got to be careful if, you're, if your spouse is here this morning when you say it. He's, be, he's bigger than your job. Maybe you came here, and, and, and I was having this conversation with one of our elders this week. You know, our suicide rate for young people is through the roof. It's larger than it's ever been. Loneliness and depression and, and sadness and, and young people desiring to take their lives. You, you, may, you may have not all, I know there's got to be people here this morning that have not only thought about taking your own life, but maybe you've even attempted it. Can I tell you that the Lord is not ashamed of you? That God loves you and that he cares for you right where you're at. And he's good enough to meet you where you are. And at the end of the day, what happens when we understand that the promise is better than the law, we understand that it's gospel-centered. We just want more of Jesus, and we're okay if we don't have anything else. And everything else we have is just a bonus. Number three, Paul shares with us that its timing is perfect. Look at verse 17. This is... This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. He's mentioning time frame now. He says, yeah, Abraham came 430 years later. There, there was the law. However, he's stating that the timing of all of this is perfect. God knew exactly what he was doing. We'll share what the law means here in just a few moments. But I just want you to understand something, that the gospel and the seed and the promise of Jesus, the promise that came to Abraham and the fall of humanity in the beginning of Genesis and what we have in the New Testament and who we are today has all happened at the right exact time. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why do I live in Truckee? Why do I live in Reno? Why was I born in this time? Why was I born to this family? Why did God not put things together earlier? Why hasn't he come sooner? Has anyone ever asked that question? Why have you not come back sooner? Why not right now? And the Bible will tell you time and time again, it says it in Galatians 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time has come, that is when he sent forth his son. Do you know why you're in Truckee today? Do you know why you're in this church today? Without a shadow of a doubt, you are here this morning. I believe that you would hear the goodness of God, that you would place your life and your faith in the hands of God, and that your faith would be strengthened and more purified, not larger, but more purified, and who Jesus is, that you would grow closer to Jesus today than you were yesterday. His timing is perfect. And the Bible tells us that he bore us, he allowed us to be born at a specific time to specific people in a specific area because it's the best time and place for you to get saved. So you're like, why am I in Truckee? Because Jesus wants you to be saved. Why do I have a friendship with Christians? Because Jesus wants you to be saved. Why do I know Jesse? Because Jesus wants you to be saved, and so do I. Because there's nothing better than being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Number four, verse 18, because the promise, which he uses the words in verse 18, inheritance is complete. It's been given and it's full and it's complete. You don't have to add to this promise any longer. It's 100% done with. It says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Jesus is the complete promise of God. And so it's better because the law, and he says, he says it in the text here, you could keep working to the law, but we know perfection never comes from the law because no one's ever been complete. Is there any complete person here this morning? Anybody walking perfectly? There isn't. But Jesus is the perfect one. This is why we say you don't need to be perfect because you know the one who is. And you live that life now in Christ. That's number four. And then number five, uh, just, just kind of the way that I've written this one here, and I know the whole topic has been into this, but just number five, the, the whole law is just flat out inferior. It's just inferior. And Paul adds to more reasons here why. The first one he says, he says, first of all, first of all, it can't save you. He says in verse 19, ultimately it can't save you. Secondly, the law only reveals to you your transgressions. Do you see that in verse 19? He says, because Paul asked the question because he knows the Judaizers are asking it. Wait a minute, if we're saved by faith, why then the law? Do you see it? Why, why does the law exist? Why are there 10 commandments? Why is that there? And he says it's there because, and this is one of the reasons why it's inferior, it's there because it shows you your transgression. What the law does is it shows you, it demonstrates to you your total sinfulness that you can never fully add up to God. And then he adds to that and says, says that uh, the, the, the law imprisons and it traps and that the law is like a teacher. It uses a different word here. It uses master or another translation might actually say tutor. And it's referring to a custodian in the biblical day that actually took care, uh, care of a child while the parents were gone from the ages of 6 to 16. Now, now I don't know if this it will reminisce with some of you, but how many of you remember when a teacher could actually hit you? That is a lot of people. Um, I remember in Truckee Elementary, I had a teacher. She hit me with a ruler once. My mom had the same teacher. She, apparently, that's how she handled that, you know? And I remember, man, I remember uh, several times where in Truckee Elementary where the teacher would get frustrated with me and send me to the principal's office. And I would mark down, I would march down that hallway, and I'd sit in the principal's office, and they'd sit me under one of the teacher's desks and I would sit there until my parents came home. Now, now, some of you, if you have kids in the public school system now, you know that you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't hit, you can't hit teachers. If you're, if you're a teacher here this morning, just in case I need to teach you, you can't hit your students anymore. You can't even send them to the principal's office anymore in the same way. Because I think they've learned, uh, they've learned that, that it doesn't have quite the greatest psychological impact on children, um, which explains a lot for me and what I'm working through in my life. But, but that, that idea of teacher that, 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 that some of you have, uh, and some, some of the individuals in the first service were sharing with me just stories of teachers and, and things that they did and said to discipline their children that you can't do today, you can't do anymore. But this is the idea of the tutor. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying the law of God is like a tutor. It's like a teacher. And he uses the language here that the scripture was given to imprison under sin. And what he's saying is, is that if you live according to the law, he's adding to what he said a few verses previously, that if you live under the law, you're living under a curse. You're entrapped. You're in a prison. And the idea is that you get in that prison and you recognize, I can't make my life better. I can't make people better around me. I can't make my own joy complete. I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. And no matter how hard I work, no matter how much money I have, no matter how cool the cars are that I drive, no matter what kind of shoes that I'm wearing or the kind of jeans I have, no matter what kind of success I have, there's still something more. I, and you, you feel it. I know you, some of you have felt it this morning. You felt that tension of, I can't make enough money. It's never enough. I can't get the right kind of clothing, the right kind of people around me. I, I, I can't get enough likes on social media. It's just not enough. I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. I can't get out of prison. And what Paul says is he says, the messenger of Jesus Christ has come and and has freed us from that bondage by grace. Jesus has come down to the prison, and he's given us the keys out of the prison, which leads me to the, one of the points I think I missed earlier about the messengers. The messengers between the law and grace is stark. And so Paul has, 
has been mentioning here, he talks about the law, which was given by Moses, and he talks about the promise that was given by God to Abraham. Now, I don't know if you have, have been able to ever think of the contrast between the two. But when God gave the law to Moses, Moses went up a mountain, Mount Sinai, and it was a foreboding mountain. And it tells us that the earth was shaking and the mountain essentially was on fire. And God told the people, he told them, don't go near the mountain lest you die. And so you have this dark image and picture of the law being given to Moses. And what the Judaizers were saying was the messengers of the law are great because they were angels and Moses himself. And then what Paul essentially is saying, he's saying, you've got to go back to Abraham because, again, the promise is more superior because of its messengers, that what Paul received, he, I'm sorry, not Paul, but when Abraham received the promise of God, it was said that Abraham received it as a friend from a friend. So the message of saving grace was given by God himself to Abraham, and the law was given by this foreboding, shaking mountain from Moses to men. It was man to man, and all of this to be said that, that he's teaching us, he's telling us, he's pressing into us that the promise of, of salvation and grace is from Jesus, and what we need is to put our eyes back on Jesus and not on, on doing all the right things, because no one can do it. Now, here's the deal. <clears throat> We're going to close here in just a moment. The struggle between the law and grace is real. It just is for every person. And Paul, actually, he, he shares this struggle in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, he says this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 23. He says, but I see in my members. That's a way for him to say, in my body. I see in my body members of one another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He, he's, saying, he's essentially saying in the text, I've got two kind of laws in my heart. One is this law of grace. I know I'm saved by grace, and I know that God loves me. At the same time, I'm trying to lift my own shame and guilt and pain through my own works. And he's like, I, I just can't, I, can, I can't fight it. it. It's in me. There's a war in me. And then he says this. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Has anyone ever been through life had a day, had a month, had a year where you're just like, Lord, deliver me. Have you ever said this? You know, today would be great if I could just take a vacation from me. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it's just me, right? I'm the guy with all the problems. I'm preaching to me, not you. That's okay. That's, that's okay to a certain extent, you know? And and that, 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 this is Paul, he's saying, I feel this tension, I feel the law, I feel sin, I feel the darkness of the world pressing in on me, I feel it, it's, it's making me depressed, it's making me anxious, it's frustrating me. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And then he says, who's going to deliver me? He's frustrated. The guy who wrote Galatians is frustrated with his faith. He's frustrated with his sin. I hope that's an encouragement to you. And then he says, he wraps it up and he understands, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? I go back to the seed. I go back to Jesus. And he says, so then I serve the law of God again. I go back and I serve God out of faith. And I put my eyes on the Lord. You know, you're going you're gonna to hear this no matter how long you are part of Sierra Bible Church's family. If, if you're new here and you continue to come, if you're here for five years, if you're here for six months, you're going to continually hear that we have to get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on Jesus Christ. And you know what we're entering into? Just so I can get myself in some trouble because, you know, I don't want to leave here totally innocent. We're entering into a political season. And the inevitable trap so many Christians fall into is to get to allow the political season to frustrate you, to make you angry, to make you post things on social media that are not gospel-centered. Get your eyes off of the president. Get your eyes on Jesus. Get your nose back in God's word. If you feel frustrated with the political world, it's because your eyes are off of Christ. You hear me? I kind of want to like, yell at you a little bit. I just It's one of those things I... 
I, I see the world trapping God's people to get wrapped up in things that at the end of the day are going to burn. You know what's going to stand? The new nation. The U.S. won't be here, guys. It won't be here. I don't know when he's coming back, but one day the U.S. won't be here, and it'll be one nation, and it'll be a nation of faith from every tribe and every tongue. And it'll be beautiful, it'll be good, it'll be better food, and we'll have a way better leader. Hey, hey, you laugh. The Bible says a lot about good food in heaven. I am be being theologically astute. Okay? <laughs> a couple things here. Um, <clears throat> as you leave, you know, we've been trying to give you these next steps. Uh, here's what I would hope you would do this week. Number one, uh, how do the details of God's covenant-making ceremony with Abraham encourage you? I want you to take some time this week to think of that covenant uh, and, and to ask the question, when, you're most tempted to look, when are you most tempted to look at your own efforts to make yourself acceptable to God? And then number two, uh, to help you diagnose your own heart, I'd, I'd like you to ask yourself, what causes me to feel despair in my life and what makes me feel proud about myself? How does the gospel of grace fix this? So again, you know, these next steps are just an encouragement for you to put your eyes on Jesus. And I pray that, that we would be a people in the Tahoe Basin who would just put our eyes on Jesus and take people around us and put their eyes on Jesus because he is our ultimate hope. Amen, church? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, that, Lord, we don't have to be frustrated with the world around us because our eyes are on heaven. I think of your wonderful saint, C.S. Lewis. I think he said, those who are of most earthly good are those who are of the most heavenly-minded. And I pray we would have an impact on our world, but it would be because our eyes are focused on the gospel of grace, focused on you, Lord. And, Lord, my comments on the political world is, is not to be uh, thrown off as if I don't care about our government leaders for you actually instruct us to pray for them and so for those who are attempting and those who are leading our nation we pray Lord that you would guard them that you would protect them that you would lead them to salvation and you would lead them to grace and that they would lead by grace and they would speak by grace and where they they don't may we not fall into the sin of duplicating them we know that we are not capable of of earning our salvation or keeping it. And so as we leave here, may we put our eyes on the promise that, Lord, that you saved us and you will keep us saved. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. The church said, amen.